All right, big passage, a lot going on. Um, I'll work you through it. Let's, uh, let's pray and sort of uh, prepare ourselves if we would. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you that, uh, that we get to gather here as your people, that we get to relate to each other in this way, that we get to meet each other where we are, um, and that you meet us here. And I pray that, uh, that this would be a nourishing sort of morning, that these times when we get to gather like this, that we would, we would recognize that it's, that it's a gift. I think we recognize that now more than we ever have, that it's a gift and that it is um, part of your plan to restore all things. It is what you are doing in the world. It's gathering people together to reenact your story, to live out your story. I pray that right now you would focus us on that. I pray that we would understand Paul, what Paul is doing um, as he attempts to translate sort of the message of Jesus to these people. Help us to glean from it the things that can help us do the same. And uh, I pray that you would meet us here this morning. That you would help us to discern our way turn our, our, our path forward from here. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about three things up front. There's uh, several groups of people. P- Paul has found himself, he, uh, if you'll remember, he tried to go to, he went to Berea first, and then some people came to arrest them, um, and Paul fled. They told Paul, sort of, get out of here, and we're going to deal with these people who are trying to arrest you. So Paul goes to an area which is out of their jurisdiction, because these are Jewish leaders partnering with Herod to arrest these um, Jewish Christians. And Paul flees to Athens, and he doesn't know what to do there, and he gets there, and he's patient, and he's waiting, and he's trying to figure out what God is going to do. And while he's there, he does what he normally does, and, and uh, he sort of starts teaching, and he engages with people. And some people hear him speak, specific people, uh, Stoics and Epicurean philosophers hear him speak, and they're intrigued by what he's saying. And so they take his arm, and they lead him up to what's called the Aeropagus, um, also known as Mars Hill. Um, it is a hill sort of overlooking the city of Athens where the, it's, it's not just a, it's not the name of the place necessarily, the Aeropagus. It's also the name of the group that gathered there. They were called the Aeropagus. They were a group of, of philosophers, Stoic, Epicurean, um, and various other sort of schools of thought that would gather there regularly to discuss sort of the, like a finer things club, if you will. And they are gathering the latest ideas. So when one of them hears Paul bringing some ideas they hadn't heard before, they go get Paul and they bring him up because this is what you do in Athens. You bring them up to the, um, the Aeropagus to hear what they have to say and you have some banter about it. People don't grasp uh, what it meant in the first century, like the sport of, of speech making. It was, a, it was a fine art in that day. Everyone took part in in. in, in giving orations, and just everyone was supposed to be ready at any moment to sort of launch into a long extended poem of Cicero or um, just tell some ancient mythic tale in a way that is intriguing and make people laugh, and it would raise your status and honor in the community. It was the only other way you could make money. Um, Either you just had money, and you were just, that's what you did for a living, you had money, 
or you were somebody who was like an orator. But if you worked with your hands, you didn't really get to have money. It was, it was, it was disgusting to work with your hands. But if you were an orator, it was the one way you could raise yourself up, up out of the community of people who worked with their hands into the upper class. And so Paul has a lot of sway. Paul is a very good orator, and they're calling him in to be one. Um, and if you're thinking, what about in Corinthians when Paul says uh, that he's not a good orator? I've talked about that before. I think Paul was doing that on purpose to lower his own status in the community and the community's status so that they could actually be Christians. Um, That's kind of what they needed to do. So I'm going to talk about these three groups of people, Um, the Epicureans, the Stoics. uh, There's two groups of people, and then there's this idea of the unknown God. But really, when you look at Paul's writing and what he's saying to these three groups, he says some really interesting things, and it's not just that. It's the things that he doesn't do that is also equally interesting. For, for, For instance, like Paul doesn't preach salvation by faith through grace to these people. He doesn't do it at all, even though they're Gentiles, even though they need to hear sort of the message of salvation by faith through grace. Paul doesn't give that to them. Paul doesn't give any trace of atonement theories in his gospeling here in Athens. He doesn't give any mention of the cross, not even a a passing glance of the mention of of Jesus dying for sins or nothing like that. He doesn't talk about um, law, grace, anything. He's very specific about the things he talks about. He talks about what they're into. Uh, and it's really interesting that he does this. So let's talk about, first off, um, the Epicureans. Where are we at? Let's go right here. The Epicureans. Um, oh, wait. First off, I wanted to go back and show you a verse. There is, right here in verse 18, it tells us who these people were. It says, a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with, with him, with Paul. Uh, and some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, I get that a lot. Uh, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this, was, this, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they take Paul up to this hill. Um, one of the groups that's there is called the Epicureans. Um, and the Epicureans had a very specific um, set of beliefs. And it's centered around one main idea that the gods, if they do exist, are very, very far away. There's a lot of them who are like the gods don't exist. But even if they do they're just so far away that they don't really matter. They don't care about us. They don't really, they're not interested in the affairs of human beings. They, um, they're just not interested, and they're very far away. So we don't worry about them. We don't offer sacrifices. We don't build temples. We don't do any of it because we don't care. Um, this was sort of how the Epicureans were talking about things. Um, they, they tried to just live as quietly as possible with just the right amount of everything. It was an ideal life that they were seeking. An ideal life to them was an independent, untroubled, unworried life, um, which is easy when you're wealthy, of course. Uh, and they, they didn't have any questions about their destiny after they died. They just didn't, which is why Paul doesn't talk about it. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about next week the idea of evangelism. It's like this fleeting idea that we all kind of grew up with. But like, where did it go and how do we do it? Like, what does it mean? What what about our context? How does it work? Um, Because when I was a kid, every attempt at what's called evangelism started with me asking a question to somebody about where they were going to go when they die. Which, from the way I looked, oftentimes they would look at me as if they're wondering if I'm about to kill them. Um, And they would just sort of stammer like, why are you asking me about this? Like, there, there came a moment where this stopped being an effective method of talking to people. Um, as Christendom died, there used to be, this was the conversation people were having, believe it or not. Previous generations talked a lot about life and death and after, and modern generations just don't. They just don't. Um, and so, Paul talks to the Epicureans. Um, 
And he, hold up a second. Paul has several things. Like an Epicurean agreed substantially with some of the things that we just read about Paul. They agreed substantially with some of the things. Like he, Paul has these rather scathing comments about pagan worship. Um, but for the opposite reasons that the Epicureans did. Paul says, you don't need to spend time in these temples offering sacrifices to these gods because they just don't matter. And the Epicureans who were there gathered around would be like, we agree. And they'd be nodding and they'd, be, they'd actually be cheering and egging him on and they'd be like, Yes, we agree. They'd be audibly making sort of cues to let him know louder, keep going, say that part again, right? Um, and this is what they were doing. So while, Paul's, while Paul is talking in this way, they're sort of cheering this on because they agreed with the idea that like, we don't, the gods are far away, we don't need to do anything. But Paul doesn't say that. For the Epicureans, Paul has a message. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he's not served by human hands. And if, if he needed anything uh, I'm sorry, not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And when Paul says this, they would have been cheering. They would have been excited about that. And he confronts the Epicureans head on um, when he says that basically he says that God acted so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. And so Paul sort of says a couple of things. He says, I agree with you. We don't need to spend time doing all this um, stuff. It's like the prophet Amos walks in, right, in the Old Testament. He walks in and he says, he says, I have a message from God. Are you ready? <clears throat> I hate this church. I hate your sacrifices. I hate your tithing and your giving. I hate your ministries. I hate everything that you do. I hate it all because there's all kinds of people who are suffering and you just don't care about it. And so away with your show, right? This is what Paul's getting at. So Paul agrees with the Epicureans that you don't need to be like making all these sacrifices to God. Um, because that's not what God wants. God wants something else. And at the very end of the passage, he actually brings it up. It's justice. And Jesus is here um, to be the judge of that, whether or not something is right and just and whether or not it should be. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So this is Paul's message for the Epicureans. He says, um, God has orchestrated everything so that and in hopes of you reaching out. I know you think God's far away. But if you tried reaching out, have you tried um, reaching out to perhaps find him as if possibly these gods that are all powerful, perhaps they can actually hear you and perhaps they're more interested than you realize, okay? So the next group is called the Stoics and the Stoics also have their own interpretation of everything and the Stoics live by the idea that everything is God and there's a story here to this. Um, so they believe God started out as sort of this fiery spirit and created everything and this fiery spirit swept throughout the world and eventually the fire died down but the essence of God, who God was, stayed and thinned out and sort of spread out all over the world um, and became one with creation as creation was made. And this is how they talk about God, um, that God is in everything. God's in the trees, God's in the mountains, God's in the river, God's in the plants, God's in the sky, God is in the sun, God is all of it. It's not just that he's in it. It's not just like, it's not just, it's not like this, like, like God is present in it. It's like that, no, these are a part of God and everything belongs to God in this way, 
like as if the earth is God's appendages. So it's a very unique sort of way of looking at everything. Um, They believe what gave human beings life was that little bit of spark that was left over, God's little spark here, right? And so they believed, uh, so the Stoics basically are really happy to hear that there is indeed a divine life which is in all things. Paul says, uh, in him we move and live and have our being. And they're like, yes, exactly, because we come from God. So Paul's appealing to them, right? Um, And so they're finding things that they also agree with. So for the Stoics, Paul reaches out to them and And he has this quote. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. But this quote comes from a particular place. Paul's not just like having a dialogue with them. He's having a dialogue with their culture. He's having a dialogue with their poets and their writers and their deep thinkers. He literally quotes, there's this man, there's this ancient man named named Aratus. And Aratus wrote a poem um, called Phenomena. And in this poem... He talks about the god Zeus, the, the greatest god that they all worshipped, and he talks about how Zeus is everywhere. Let's read part of the poem uh, here. It goes like this. It says, let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. Like, we always talk about Zeus. Praise Zeus. It's a great day. Thank you, Zeus. All that. Uh, For every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbors are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul knows this passage. Paul's a very well-educated man. He has studied them. I don't even think he did it in preparation for running into any Stoics. Paul didn't know he was going to Athens. He had no plans on going to Athens. Paul was just a guy who was interested in learning everything. And this is a gift of God because God was going to send him everywhere to have all kinds of conversations. And so Paul takes this passage from Aratus and he works it into his sermon. In Acts 17, 28, he says, In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And I love that Paul's doing this kind of stuff. There's this psalmist. Um, he's really calling out to like the, the inner part of them. He says, look, if you're left over from God, like if God... If God was present and left part of himself behind and now you have come out of that and you have that divine spark of God in you, inside of you, like if, if this is you, if this is what you have, then that divine part of you, wouldn't it be calling out to something deeper? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be driving you into something else? I mean, this is not far off from sort of some Jewish theology about how we're created in the image of God. They don't have the same language. They don't talk about the divine spark and stuff like that. I know that some modern scholars like Richard Rohr kind of use that, use that language. Um, but that's not what the Jews, Jewish people are doing. That's not necessarily what Paul is doing. Um, but this is what the Stoics are connecting with. They say, we agree with this. And Paul says, well, there's this part of you. He says, I'll agree with you here. There's this part of you which wants so desperately to connect with the divine, which wants so badly to connect with God. And this is what he's here to point out for them. There's this passage in Psalms where it talks about how, um, let's see if I have it here. I think I do. Psalm, uh, let me hit this one more time here. Psalm 42. It says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. So sometimes you read passages of the Psalms and you're like, that's, first off, like a super weird thing to say. Like if I ever drop this in conversation, it doesn't make any sense at all. So what's happening with this psalmist is he spent time apparently at this waterfall and he visits this waterfall and he is enraptured in the beauty of this place and the power and the sheer weight of the water and the noise and the terrifying feeling of like, this feels like a sacred place. And the psalmist apparently, when he gathers his, 
his, uh, his thoughts and he goes to the waterfall and he sits. When he's there, he feels this divine presence and he feels something inside of him reaching out to God. If you've ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, if you've ever, um, if you've ever seen the size of like a blue whale, if, you've, like, if, you, if you ever see something unexpected, if you've ever been at the birth of your children, you get a sense of this. You get a sense that there is this part of you that is calling out for something deeper and that is screaming out when these moments happen, do you feel it? There's something bigger happening. So this is what the psalmist is getting at. This is also what Paul is getting at. The Stoic, I mean, to the Stoic, Paul declares that God, that, that, that God and the world are not the same thing, but that the impulse which pushes you to suppose that they are the same thing, that impulse is actually a gift from God. That God gave you that so that you would seek him. And Paul starts pointing at all the idols and all of the temples and all of the statues. And he says, look around you. It is obvious that this is going on. It is obvious that you're seeking something. And then he has one more thing to point to. He points to this statue called the Statue of the Unknown God. We see it right here in verse 22. Uh, it says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said this, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So he sees this altar, and there's a plaque on it that says, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. He says, I mean, this tells me you don't even know what you're, what you're looking for. You don't even know what you're worshiping. You're just assuming that, like, you have to worship, but you don't know where you're supposed to direct this thing. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And Paul says, I have the answer for you. So he's sort of like, he's intrigued them, all right? And now, and now he's going to lay it out for them. Now, <clears throat> if you ever study up like some of these ancient altars, these ancient sort of gods and stuff, especially this altar that says to an unknown God, there's a story to these things. About 600 years before Paul stood here and gave this speech, um, there, was a, um, there was a poet a Crete poet named Epimenides, and this poet had an idea. This poet taught that there were other gods that you just didn't know about, and one of the things you needed to do to find peace in life was to locate these gods and worship them in the adequate way so that some of the things that go wrong won't go wrong because you're obviously offending a god somewhere. So let's find out who these gods are. So here's what he did. His brilliant plan was to take a bunch of sheep, about a hundred of them, and to starve them for about three weeks, and then to let them go all over the Aeropage, all, all over Mars Hill. And he said, and there's lots of grass there, by the way. Uh, and so they let them all go, and they come out, and they start eating. But a few of them don't eat, and they lay down. And he says, aha, the ones that are laying down, they are telling you where the gods are. I don't get it either. <laughs> he apparently had some argument that was very persuasive because it worked, and they were erecting statues and, and altars everywhere where the sheep were laying down instead of eating. Uh... And he put all those altars to the unknown God as if like, apologies, we missed you. <laughs> okay, we got you covered. Tell us about yourself sometime. Thanks. And walked away, right? Like, this is, what, this is what they were doing. And so now, when Paul says this, he's standing by this altar. And everyone is sort of leaning in now. Because now he's spoken to the Epicureans. He's spoken to the Stoics. And so everyone, now he's talking about this God. He's got them all wrapped around his fingers. And they're all leaning in. And so now he's got work to do. And so now that everyone's leaning in, they feel honored, they feel understood, they feel welcomed into the conversation. By the way, when was the last time, man, 
When was the last time Christians attempted to use this method of actually communicating with people? Thoroughly well studying their position, understanding it, being able to communicate it well in a way that they would understand and affirm, and then engaging in it in dialogue, rather than just calling them some, like, shorthand way of, 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 of belittling them and dehumanizing them and moving on. Paul knows what he's doing. He knows how to change people. You change people with your presence, with respect, with love and honor, looking them in the eyes, treating them like a human being. And Paul does this, and Paul gets it. Okay? So, he's talking about idols. That's what Paul has come up on this hill to talk about. Idols. Idolatry. Um, <clears throat> it said at the very beginning of, of chapter 17, it said something to the effect of Paul was shocked by the amount of idols that he's seeing. They're everywhere, and he's uncomfortable with it because he's a Jewish man. They don't make, the Jewish people didn't make um, carvings of anything. They didn't carve plants or animals or none of it. They just didn't do it. They were told not to make craven images, and they obeyed it. But Athens was full of idols, and the local people were constantly bringing sacrifices and offerings to gods and goddesses of every kind. Um, If you look at verse 24, um, is this where we are? Yes, this is where we are. Uh, It says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And so part of these temples, each each giant temple was supposed to be the house of a God. It's the one place where that God enters into the actual world and lives amongst people in that temple. So if you want to visit that God, this is the only place he lives. And so there's a giant idol of that God there. And all all these temples had massive idols in the very center of them. And I imagine him standing there sort of with a wave of his arm towards the, Parth- the, the, the Parthenon standing on the hill beside him. Like, and he's like, it's as if he's saying like, yes, I, I see these temples that you have made of human hands. And first off, well done, very impressive. Uh, one of the actual wonders of the ancient world, by the way. Still standing today, still goes, incredibly beautiful. Although I will point out, um, modern scholars have actually started to show that this actually might not be the Parthenon at all. <laughs> so there's that. Um, but we're going with it because that's all we know. Okay, um, whatever that is, uh, Paul's, Paul's basically, you know, impressive, well done. I'm, I'm very impressed with everything you have here. Nice job with your temple, but it misses the point. And as for bringing animal sacrifices to the true God, well, this is the wrong way around. Like, he, it is God who gives everything to us. God's not coming to you asking you to give him all kinds of things. That's not what God is doing. God is actually the giver of all of those things. He's asking you to use them for the kingdom. That's why he has provided them. That's why he's provided the, the, the grass in the fields and the rocks in the hills and the water in the rivers and the very bones in your body. That's why God has given it to you so that we can together form an existence that is peaceful and just and good. This is what God is after and inviting them into it. All of these idols in Paul's minds are signs of ignorance. Sensing, here's how Paul views it basically. You sense that there's a divine presence, a divinity of some kind, but you're not really really sure, you don't know what to do with that sense that you have, and so you just do everything you can. And it's understandable that you do this. Um, I sometimes like to imagine, I read passages of the Bible and I, I sometimes like to imagine if that were to take place in Tampa, because I live in Tampa, um, and it's a, it's a nice way of sort of thinking about, like, okay, we have idols, what, what, how are we sort of subjects of Paul's speech here? Um, and we might feel obliged sometimes to laugh at these ancient temples and the, 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 uh, the ancient stories of, like, Epimenides and all these people who did these weird things. Um, 
And we like to just wave it off and be like, it was for a time. They were stupid. We're smarter. We're, we're, we're enlightened, and uh, we, we don't think like that anymore. And we laugh them off, and we push them away. But perhaps if we spend some time observing our own lives, I, 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 think, I think Paul would have some, uh, some things to say about the assumptions that some of us make, about the way that we organize our lives. Because I think there's a lot more idolatry in us than, than we are able to see and that we are willing to recognize. Maybe perhaps here, let me, let me I, I wrote a couple here. We'll see how it goes. I picture Paul saying like this. Okay. I have noticed, people of Tampa, I have noticed that you spend your weekdays working every day. You get up and you go to work every single day. And your weekends, though, are spent. Like you look forward to the weekends. And your weekends, oftentimes, though, are spent, rather than being present with the little that you actually have here, you spend your time perhaps medicating with substance and alcohol and various ways of escaping what you've been looking forward to all week. Um, and perhaps you think that there is some meaning in like what you're, what you're building and that you're trying to find wor- meaning in your work and the days off are nice, but like the days off kind of give me time to like, like think deeply about like how mi- maybe miserable that I am and I, I don't like these thoughts and so I medicate and I try to cover it all up. And I'm just going to get back to Monday and be like, okay, here we go again, Monday, all the way to the end. God does not live in temples built by human hands. God is not in that. God is found in the Sabbath rest. God is there in the the quiet presence. God is there in the nourishing. God wants you to understand who you are. This is what we've been talking about with patience and Sabbath rest. Also, perhaps, might Paul stand up and say, "I I have noticed that when you're setting up your societies and you're building your cities and designing the way you will live communally together. I have noticed that you avoid the poor. I've noticed that you also avoid children. I've noticed you avoid the sick and the needy. I've noticed you move away from them, and you move around, you drive around their neighborhoods. You build highways so you can just bypass the whole thing, never having to look at it, never having to see it, because it makes you feel uncomfortable. And maybe you don't know what to think about it. I've noticed you move away from them. I've noticed that you, you sometimes even pay them to go away. Um, and then Paul would point out that, like, God doesn't think the same way we do. God isn't moving away from them. God is, God is actually already there. God is more there than possibly where you are. God is with the poor. And God is there waiting for you, calling out to you, his deep calling to your deep, the way the psalmist described it, like, to come join, to be a part of it. Waiting for you to, both, to join both him and them. And third, perhaps Paul would stand up and say, I have noticed that you worship in temples of glass and metal. And I've done this before. This is one of my favorite things to think about. I like to talk about shopping malls as temples. I think it's one of the, uh, one of the best examples of modern temples. That and the gym, actually, both of them. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not knocking any of it. I want you to see some parallels. I want you to see this. Okay, so... Um, Maybe you go there weekly, you go to the mall weekly. I mean, pre-COVID, yeah, of course. Um, Mid-COVID, every other week, right? Um, No, but like you go to the mall, and what do you do? You wander the labyrinth, right? Just like a, a Greek Orthodox church. You wander the labyrinth, and you look, and you think, what do I need? Lords of fashion. 
I have sinned. Look at my garb. It's monochrome. It's all it ever is. And I don't feel worthy. Right? And you walk the labyrinth and then you go into sort of one of the stores and the priest is there. And the priest walks up and the priest says, hi, how can I help you? And you say, I'm just looking. I'm just searching. I'm just searching. And the priest says, I think you need this. And the priest is going to help you absolve yourself of your sins and be washed clean and put in the good spirits of everyone around you. You will now buy and purchase and wear the approval. You'll be made whole again and good. And you will walk back out into the mall if you put it on in the changing room and then came out like a weirdo. (laughs) And everyone will be like, wow, you found it. Where did you get it? Where did you find it? I've been searching my whole life. How do I find it? H&M in the back. Four left, all medium. Go there. And they go there. You've evangelized. You have made a convert. Like, our lives are very worshipful. I don't think you grasp it. Very worshipful. And we are so acclimated to it that it's very normal. But in the ancient world, may I remind you, they had an undergarment and an overgarment. And they wore it every day. We have weaved into it sort of like this idea of worship and worth, if you will. I mean, that's what worship is. It's worth-ship. It's, it's, it's giving something the worth that you believe it has. And you give it a lot of time. And you make sure you, you work really hard at it to give it the worth that you think it needs. And Paul would say that our every action today says something about our yearning for God. That's what Paul is saying. Everything you do speaks to your yearning for God. The way you have organized your life speaks to your yearning for God. And that is the thing that you need to plumb the depths of. Why are you doing what you're doing? What are you trying to get out of it? Has perhaps God, through Christ, already provided you the means to to meet that need? And perhaps you are just medicating because you don't want to receive what is freely offered to you. Idols are all about meeting our needs. This is what idols are. All of humanity's problems come from one particular thing. I want you to understand this. All of our problems come from one thing. Our desire to have our needs met and the methods which we choose to, to meet those needs. And every problem, spiritually, probably emotionally, I'm not a therapist, but probably emotionally, probably physically, we are seeking to have our needs met all the time and things go wrong when we go to the wrong place to meet these needs. That's where things go wrong. Um, that is the pain of the whole thing. I heard, um, oh, last week we had our, our Q&A with Scott McKnight about his Tove book. And in prep for it, I listened to a few of the podcasts he's done because he's done a bunch. I, I literally heard him talking a couple weeks ago. Um, I think someone in the church sent it to me. Um, and I, I listened to the podcast, and there was this conversation about Christian, uh, Christian conferences, right? And one of the guys on the call, it might have been Scott McKnight, it might not have been, but he said, basically, Christian conferences today are a show of people getting their needs met improperly, both the people on the stage and the people in the audience. All of them are collectively meeting each other's needs inappropriately because they have become celebrity shows. And that's okay in the world of TED Talks, but we are the church. 
And this is not how we were ever supposed to be presented to the world. We were supposed to come in humility and meekness and kindness and gentleness. Um, and when it comes to Jesus, we rarely actually go to Jesus for the needs that we need met. We, we, we kind of spread out and we try to meet all these needs in, all, in like multiple ways. We buy things, we make things, we drink things, we amass wealth, we fight wars, we become promiscuous, we go shopping. We do all these things to meet the needs that we have. And we can't even put our finger on it, but we're trying to meet it. And when it comes to Jesus, we use Jesus like sort of a piecemeal. Like, I've, I got my needs met over here with this and that and this thing and this thing. My spiritual need, Jesus. Sprinkle a little Jesus on there. Um, and I think we're good. But what we actually become is fragmented. We're serving all these different ends. We're serving all these different things. And we rarely ever want to ponder the fact that actually Jesus is fully equipped and capable of meeting all of our needs that we have. Jesus is fully capable of meeting all these needs. He has given us the church. He's given us the spirit. He's given us himself. He's given us the story. He's given us the mindset and the eyes with which to interact with and see the world around us, the way to see ourselves, the way to see other people. Jesus has given us all of this. But we only ever seem to apply Jesus to very specific things that most of the time are disconnected from our lives, like we talk about afterlife and we talk about stuff like, what about now? There is life before death found in Christ. There really is. Like, there's lots of it. Incredible, inspiring, passionate life. We sing this song called, uh, by, by the brilliance called From Dust We Are and Shall Return. I, I, it's one of my favorite songs to play. I love it. I love singing it. And this idea comes from Ecclesiastes 3 that basically says that, um, you know, naked we came into the world and naked we will go. Glory to God in the highest. Terrible things will happen, things will come, things will be given and things will be taken away. Glory to God in the highest. And all of it, no matter what happens, glory to God in the highest. And there's this bridge, there's this bridge that repeats itself. When you get to the bridge, it's, it's very, it's sort of like, it's, it's sort of in a way, for a song that is about, about you being born with everything that you need, there is this bridge that says, Lord, make me whole. And it's startling because it feels like it doesn't belong. It feels like you're asking for something. But what I have surmised in the way I interpret this line in this song is groundbreaking for me. That when the psalmist says, Lord, make me whole, while singing about, I came into the world naked and I'm going to leave naked. And I came from dust and dust I will return. The songwriter, in my mind, is getting at the idea that like, Oftentimes, in order for us to be made whole, things don't need to be given, they need to be taken away. That we were already whole and we've buried it. We've buried our wholeness in stuff. That we, and, and ways of living and organizing our lives that we, that we rarely ever critique, that we rarely ever hold up to Jesus and say, is this the path of Jesus or not? My theory about this and the way I live here, did I actually, was this formed by Christ or was it just formed by whatever? Was it formed by my Saturday morning cartoons? Was it formed by the movies that I like to watch? This way that I spend my money, was this formed by the culture around me, by the advertisements that I watch? By the, 
Was this formed by the magazines I read? Like, what formed this? Was it formed by Christ? And these are the questions that we need to be asking. Because I fear that we've been medicating ourselves right out of following Jesus. More and more and more. But as we grow closer to Jesus by daily adopting his mindset, seeing the world through his eyes, praying for the presence of his spirit throughout our day, praying for a Christ-like presence upon our lives, those patterns and life will begin to fall away bit by bit. And to the one who is, who is not formed by... To the one who is not formed by Christ, it, 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 it may seem like they are actually falling behind and, and losing their sense of self, but they're actually gaining it because they're beginning to see the world in a whole different way. And so Paul ends with this interesting line in verse 31. He says this. He says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Um, Jesus, says Paul, in the end, will declare what should be and what should not be. I know we are a culture that is averse to the idea of judgment. And in fact, this is actually one of the, one of the principles by which the early Christians govern their lives. Thou shalt not judge. Don't look at the speck in other people's eyes while you're walking around with a beam in yours. Okay, this is, we assume that everyone else's life is more holy than ours. We assume that everyone's relationships are, are more healthy than ours. We assume that everyone's spiritual life is more healthy than ours. When they walk into the room, we don't look at them and start judging them by the way they look, the way they're acting, how they carry themselves, who they came in with. We don't judge them by any of this. Instead, we look at them and we see somebody that God has brought into our lives to teach us about God's own self. And we become their students. And we wonder why God has brought them into our lives. This is the posture of the early church. And Paul says, there will come a day when there will be a judgment. And it will be centered on Jesus. And we're averse to judgment because we, we grew up with these ideas about what judgment is. And I want you right now to throw off all these ideas of what you picture judgment looking like. And I want, you to, I want you to ponder this. Judgment is the declaration of what should be and what should not be. Of what should exist, the way things ought to be, and the way that they should not be. And it's a pointing out of the things that do not belong. And an, and an amplifying of the things that do. Throw these things away, adopt the thing. And that God is going to do this work I don't think this is necessarily talking about someday in the future, like long from now when you're dead. I think Paul is talking about now and then. I think it's a bit of both. But make no mistake, Jesus is king right now. Jesus is judge right now. Jesus is here now communicating to you, telling you what belongs and what doesn't, what ought to be and what ought not to be. His spirit is here prompting your heart and saying, um... This is not healthy. This should not be. This is not the way to find yourself um, in Christ. This is some other thing that you have added in an attempt to get something that Jesus has already promised that he will give, but now here you are trying to get it somewhere else. That is the definition of idolatry. It's taking Jesus off the throne and putting something else there. But when we put Jesus back on the throne and we look at everything through the eyes of Christ, Jesus judges. And he wants you to understand what belongs and what doesn't so that you can become a more holy people. 
And I say people instead of person because I always want to emphasize it's not just the individuality, it's the communal life that we live. God wants us to be a holy people with a way of thinking and a way of being and a way of looking and a way of moving through the world that the world looks at us and says, huh, they're different. I'm interested. And that makes them lean in the way Paul does with these people here. Part of Christian living is learning to let Jesus begin that work right now. To, the, the, the questions of what should be and what should not be are settled by Jesus because Jesus is the judge and you and I are not. God is the author of both the desire that you have to look around and say, what am I missing? I feel like there's something more. What is it? God is the author of that feeling. Don't hate it. It belongs. Paul says God is the author of that feeling and God is also the fulfillment of that feeling. God is everything that you should be centering your life on, specifically Jesus. I like to center Jesus and not just say God because oftentimes when you say God, people have all kinds of, all kinds of ideas about what God is. And some people are, are really into God, but it's a God that, uh, that when they describe doesn't actually look anything like Jesus. And the whole message of Jesus, the whole message of the Gospels, the message we get from God through Jesus is that, uh, is that God is like Jesus. Because oftentimes we want to say Jesus is like God, but when we say that, as Jesus passes from Jesus to God, when we say Jesus is like God, we run it through our filter of who God is, and then we tack those things onto Jesus. Just flip it around and make it all easier. God is like Jesus. This is what, that's what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, it's Jesus. That's it. So God is the author of both the desire and the fulfillment of those desires. And in Paul's thinking, there was a time when we didn't fully understand what these feelings were about, but now we do because of Jesus. Now we understand it. So the entirety of the Christian life centers on Jesus. Again, I'm beating a dead horse here. The church is not a place where we come and get inspired to live better. The church is not a place where we come and, and learn how to improve parts of our life by living by biblical principles. None of that is what we're doing. The church is the place where we come and we look at Jesus and we look at our lives and we begin to take our lives apart, fully deconstructing them and reconstructing them around and plugging them into Jesus. And it's hard and we hate doing it and we always lose things that we love only later to find out that like, I didn't love that, I was addicted to it. I didn't need that. It was an ego boost and I didn't need that. The church is a group of people learning to order our lives around Jesus. Not some ideal call, idea called God, but a man who manifests God and is calling you to manifest God too. So these are the thoughts that Paul has for these people. That's the, that's the end of my sermon. That's what I've got. Next week I want to talk about, a bit about evangelism because I think it's a, uh, it's a lost conversation. I've been having a conversation, a very in-depth conversation about evangelism with my uh, uh, seminary cohort, just we've been talking about like, what is this? How does this work? What is this uh, different streams of thought? How do they do it? And, and, and what is, what now, now that we understand biblical scholarship in, in, in a sort of a deeper way, what is, what is Paul getting at? What do we do? So next week we're going to talk about some of that and maybe disrupt some of these ideas. Um, it's my favorite thing to do is, is do a little bit of disruption and then we'll worship, right? And let it all settle back down, maybe in a different way. All right? So I want to invite the band to come on up and, uh, and go ahead and get ready. I'll move this over here for you. Um, and why don't you guys stand with me? I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I want us to uh, 
Stand and do the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that right now as we go into a time of worship that you would be very present in this. Allow us to be here. Allow us to throw off the stresses of our week. Allow us to now receive um, whatever message you have to give to us. As we sing, um, may our minds be open to the words that you have to speak to us, whatever it might be, and prepare us to receive it. And I pray all of this in the name of your, of your son and through the leading of your spirit. Amen. So do this with me. Ready? Oh, that's not it. Oh, oh, oh. Give me a second. I turned off my iPad, the, uh, the magic select. Oh, it was, sorry. Sorry. You fixed it. I broke it again. All right, let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, Take some time, be present. I do want to wish you all here at the end here a very happy Mother's Day. I want to uh, especially remember those of you who for who this is not necessarily a happy day. We see you and we love you. And um, I pray that somehow uh, we can be a part of sort of your healing if you suffered loss. Um, I also wanna lift up all those who are mothers who have never given birth, but you are mothers to so many children. Um, you're doing God's work. God is present in you and the love that you share for these children. Thank you for those who have been mothers to my children who are back here. Um, thank you all very much. Know that you are loved and appreciated. And to show in a quirky little way, we have a place out here where you can take pictures and uh, sort of remember sort of today and be present with us. So take some time and, uh, and sing with us.